whoa, 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 really quick, just a public service announcement. I'm Seth Singleton, and you might recognize my voice as the host of Storytelling with Seth, and I wanted to make sure you knew a little something before we get started. If you haven't yet, what you're about to listen to is part two of my amazing conversation with Tony Farina and Elliot Rahal. If you want to hear the whole thing, you're going to want to head over to Indie Comics Spotlight. It's on the Comics in Motion Podcast Network. It's on Anchor and all your favorite podcast platforms. When you do, you'll see the episode, part one of this conversation, hosted by my good friend, Mr. Tony Farina, on his Indie Comics Spotlight podcast. And once you've listened to that, a great deal of what you're going to hear in part two is going to hopefully make more sense. Then again, we can wax pretty poetic, and when we do, who knows whether or not we're keeping you or we're losing you. Here's what I do know. This is a great conversation. I want to make sure you hear the whole thing. So, how do we make that happen? Head on over, catch part one on the Indie Comics Spotlight podcast, come on back here for part two, and along the way, we hope you enjoy the gems that we discovered talking with Elliot Rahal about his new project, The Vein, out now from Oni Press. I do want to keep in mind, Tony, that while you and I wax poetically, there's probably some questions you initially would have liked to have asked Elliot. Yeah, and even absolutely. though we're doing this second half on mine, I'd love to just say, hey, Tony, what's a burning question you still have left over from our previous conversation that you know you would love to lead off with Elliot today? Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, so (laughs) I hope everyone has already listened to the first half of this show where Seth and I lost our mind about how much we love this book. Yeah, just rephrase it like a comic book, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah, it was almost like like 66 Batman, you know, it, it was, we, we left everybody with a cliffhanger and now we're here for part two. Will we get out of the giant ice cr- snow cone machine? Let's find out. Exactly, today. exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, apparently in the previous issue, Batman was a giant ice cream machine. So <laughs> now I don't need to read that. You don't need to know what happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, so actually for me as a history nerd, as a, um, I'm an English teacher, but I, I like love history and I read historical fiction and I, I find it, you know, I read actual histories, history too, but I like historical fiction because it's such a fascinating way to, to tell a story um, using actual events. And so that's the big thing for me is you, you've written us a work of historical fictions with vampires and I've got, you know, lots of thoughts about vampires and everything, but um, you know, you, you've chosen the 20th century as your canvas, as it were. So I guess that's the thing, like, what is it what is it about you? Like, why did you choose to set, put real people in your story and make this a work of historical fiction instead of it just being like fiction town, USA, vampires? Like, what, what was your rationale for wanting there to be actual historical moments? Uh, that's a good question, I think, with a lot of answers, you know. Um, you know, one, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, history nerd, too. Like, I, I love... Um, I'm like obsessed with history in, in, in like a, in a, in a weird way. And then uh, I'm also obsessed with like the, like, I mean, history is just, I mean, it isn't just this because of 
once you become obsessed with history, you realize it isn't just this, but like, what is history is just the story of humanity, right? We're just telling our story constantly. But then you realize, you know, the story of humanity, it's only usually uh, the, the anomaly that's occurring now is that we're finally seeing the history of people who have been conquered or who have been um, downtrodden and like their stories are finally becoming part of the mainstream. I think it's one of the first times probably in the history of the world where we are now collectively witnessing like the stories of, uh, you know, minority individuals being brought to the forefront, right? Like that isn't an act and it's not an act of, anthropology it's an act of like identity and also like you know revolution and rebellion but like that's a whole i think that's really interesting when you consider that like um and and uh, you know when you consider that yes history is history but this history is also not true because it's it's been guided in some either overt or subtle or cultural or way, like, you know, all these different factors um, make us accept the world we've been given. Like one of my favorite um, questions, you know, if you're a history fan, if you're, I, I like Dan Carlin a lot um, on hardcore history. I think Dan Carlin I have a couple issues with him, mostly because like he's really good at putting you in, in the moment and really good at grounding you into that moment, which I think is really important. But then he like, I mean, I don't want to get political, but I think he's a, a little too conservative for me. Like he'll make these incredible points and then he'll, and then he'll like kind of retreat to this like weird libertarian thing. And I, I, I don't understand. But my point here is, is that, he asked a question which was like, you know, you consider Rome's invasion of Gaul and, um, you know, we are always, we have been taught that that was a, uh, a triumph, a literal triumph that uh, he conquered those people. But in reality, it's a genocide, right? Like the Gaelic people don't exist anymore, right? Like they were genocided, right? Like it was a, it was a, as a historical genocide of an entire cultural group of people that created a di diaspora that, you know, the Gaelic people fled into Spain and then, you know, famously, you know, Germany and, um, and uh, the United Kingdom. And like, I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting when you consider those aspects. I also, you know, love conspiracy theories and like, you know, Conspiracy theories are real, like not all of them, right? Most of them are not. And, and I think it's important to say that. And I think it's also important to say most of them somehow get connected to the, like really ugly anti-Semitism. But like, uh, you know, there are things that are real. And then there are things that are just fucking weird, right? Like there are things that are just weird and there are, there are happy accidents in history that change the entire outcome of the world. And, and they're either accidents or they're just some asshole got in the way, 
right? Like JFK, man. Like people want to say all this shit about Lee Harvey Oswald, but the fact of the matter is that Lee Harvey Oswald was a pile of shit, piece of shit, idiot, right? He's a dumb idiot. And like he killed the president or helped kill the president. Like I'm going to say he was involved and I'm going to say he didn't know what he was really doing other than being a piece of shit. And like, look at him now, like we're talking about him and this guy like is an idiot. Like, and he, he became the most, one of the most important people of the 1960s, maybe of this century. Right. And it's, it's wild. Like, and like his, his one action, you know, changed the course of, uh, I mean, American history. Right. I mean, I, I, so I like all of those things. I, you know, I like, I like the human moments of history. Right. Um, because there are plenty and there's plenty to be inspired from and think about. And, and when you realize that those are real people um, and not just you know, some name in your history book and that they breathed and had impact and we're here now because of what they did in some way. I, I, I've just always been, I've always liked that, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. I, I love the line. Um, that you said history is not true. And I think in our, when Seth and I were talking in our first half of this, we talked a lot about, you know, the, like that, what's happening behind the scenes and what you don't know. And, and, uh, you know, with Hoover in particular. So I love that yeah. line, history is not true. I think that's, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is true, but it's not true. Like, I don't know, like the whole thing with the truth has been like, you know, what is the truth, right? And like, what is truth and what is the truth? And it's like, those are two separate things. And then it's very clear that you can have multiple truths, right? And like, that's, I get it. it's all storytelling, right? But it's just like, my point is that George Washington was a really bad person. And like, I'm tired of people telling me he was a good guy because he like, most certainly was not a good man. Take that, history teacher. Take that, universe. <laughs> take that, hot take. That guy who owned 400 people, not so nice. <laughs> Stop telling us the story about the cherry tree. Let's tell you something that, you know, maybe you need to pay attention to, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you brought up something interesting because, um, well, I'm not going to go ahead and diminish what you just said, but I thought you brought up something. I know you brought up something interesting. I also know that what you were describing is something, it, it tickles my brain right now because we're, we're seeing that, uh, have you had a chance to glance at, uh, who is it, James the Fourth has his Department of Truth, which is expressing that same idea. Of, yeah, do you believe I, I, in something? I, I, I love Sorry. James's work. I love James's work, yeah. Continue. And it, he, he, uh, he caught my attention with his Department of Truth because he's playing with an idea that I've always sort of enjoyed as a fiction writer. Like, hey, what is truth? And how is it that we influence whether or not things are real based on our belief? How much can we believe into reality? And he's touching on that idea with his Department of Truth, using Lee Harvey Oswald as a character and, and introducing this idea of if you get enough flat earthers together, maybe they'll actually make enough people believe that 
belief then translates into reality, which is like this whole construct of how we shape events, how we uh, view not only our present, but our past, and how we can influence that through something as simple as belief, which it's never been given as much power as it has in this suggestion. And then in other ways, it's been given even more power. So this idea of right. what is truth and, and where, it, you know, how are we being told to believe something that we can make true by all of us admitting, you know, either we're believing something that isn't true and making it true, or we're ignoring that something is true in order to make something else true, <laughs> in order to, you know, keep a truth alive. Right. And that's why I try to ground everything in like, what are the facts, right? Like facts are a lot less subjective or objective, I should say. What is it? No, they're a lot less subjective than truth. Uh, but I agree with you. I mean, like the most powerful, what is it? They, you know, they say that the, the reason why humanity, uh, why Homo sapien defeated uh, Homo erectus and Neanderthals and, and whoever else is on the block at the time was because of our, our ability to storytell. Right, like our ability to say you're bad, I'm good. Right, like that's a simple story, right? But that galvanizes people. And if you can, you know, storytelling helps organize people, right? Like on a basic level. Um, And like you can use that for. I think nefarious purposes. I mean, obviously, so many times in the world we've seen it used for nefarious. I mean, look at Nazi Germany. The whole point of Nazi Germany, their whole thing, the triumph of the will, the whole point of Nazi Germany was to will a new story upon the world, or, or, or not necessarily a new story, but their story, right? Like, right. and like to, uh, force this reality through sheer willpower and uh, 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 like that's the whole point of their whole thing is to create a new history and to create new facts and to create a new science right and and all through collective ritual and storytelling and like i mean i think james is i mean i believe the, the the weird thing is is that like none like the irony of all of this entire conversation is just that I'm, I've, because of like these thought experiments and then also, you know, the events that occurred this past year, uh, especially during the summer in my city and all across the world, uh, I've become like, I'm a believer in institutions and how important they are now in the sense that like, Oh, like humans need these things. Like we need, we need, it's so funny because we create all of these things for ourselves and yet we give them all of our power. Right. And like, but at the same time, I do think we need, we need a story for ourselves, right. To hold on to and to tell and, and, and to make kind of sense of like what all this stuff is. And like, so it's, I just think we can make a better one or like improve it, but uh, that's neither here nor there, but it's just like, it's, I have, it it takes you to a religious place almost, right? Not to get weird, but it's like when you realize that like 
nothing is true in, in, in the way that like, oh, this is all made up, right? But the thing that is real is how we feel about it, right? And like the thing that is real is how it affects us and how uh, we feel about it. And, and those things though are, are, you know, aside from like concrete, like bodies in the street, like most of these things are very invisible, right? Like the, the love that you have for your, your partner, like that's the most real thing in the world, but like you can't quantify it. But like the love that you have for someone is a lot more real than like, and a lot more fact-based and truthful than like the constitution, right? Like it's just, it's just some piece of paper, 200 guys signed at one point. Like that's all it is. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't even know why we started this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think for, this is what is so good about, what we do, what Seth and I do, and just we just talk. And and uh, like I said, we we could have probably spent another hour if I hadn't had to go that last week uh, talking about this. First, oh, we only had three issues. We only had, you know, we don't even have the full series yet of of the vein. So I think, I think what you've done though is you've crafted a book. And I think what everybody who hears this is going to hear is that you're not just telling me we're talking off air about sexy vampires, which are in this book. There's 100% right. sexy vampires. It's a huge part book. of it. It is right. to be fair, a huge part of it. For sure. However, <laughs> however. That is how the, I led the pitch too. I'm like, right. hot vampires. Right. And they're like, sweet. And yeah. you deliver without a doubt. However, what you, what you have at the root of it is that whatever the framing device is, you know, sexy vampires, there's always a second layer. There's always more to a, a good story. And I think the reason Seth and I were able to in the other issue, episode is go on and on. And we only had 60 plus pages. We only had the first three issues was that you've, you've layered it and what you've done. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, how things aren't, history is not real and things are hidden in the shadows. What you do so beautifully in as your framing device for your sexy vampires is you jump time and you and Seth and I spent time trying to figure out what we thought happened in the time jumps, right? So it's like, here are the vampires sign up, they're going to go kill Nazis, because even vampires want to go kill Nazis. So hooray. So that was a great, like, my favorite scene is when Lost rips the spine out of the guy. I got to say, yeah. I mean, what a, what a panel, right? That's just, you're like, he's not my favorite vampire in all of the history of the world. But then... Um, but then you just jump time. And so you give us, the readers, a ton of information to fill in. So I feel like that's kind of what you're hint hinting at there by saying that the story is in the gaps and we have to fill it in. And I think when I look at, you now, because we just got, thanks, Tara, by the way. Hey, Tara. We just got issue four. So that was exciting. So, we, so now we've read four issues in between the time that we recorded last and here. And again, you give us so much space to fill in and I have my version of that story and Seth probably has his version. And for every, you know, tens of thousands of people who read this book, every one of them is going to be able to fill in how they get from 1945 to how they get to 1963 to get to 67. You know, like in this fourth issue, there's, there's the time jumps aren't as big. It's like three or four years, 
-hmm. But you, in two panels, you give us enough information that we can fill it in on our own. And so I think, um, so maybe that's just where you were going. That's how I feel listening to you tell that story about this, you know, history being kind of invisible and, and feelings being invisible, like the love story between Fanny and Lost is so palpable, but we never really see, we never really see it, but we can't deny it. And I just right. find that such a cool way to tell a story. Thanks, man. I tried. I mean, it's, uh, this is a little bit off of the, like, the, the, this one was a little bit different. And, like, yeah, I mean, my thing is, is, like, the whole point of, like, it, the vampires is, like, you know, the only thing that they have to live for really is each other, right? Like, and, like, I, I didn't really know what... Like their their arc basically is the arc of youthful rebellion or freedom to and then on the other side of it like nihilistic freedom right and like that's the their arc is like that nihil like nihilistic freedom is bad right and like also that that style or belief in freedom is bad because it like deteriorates your soul because it, you're not grounded in anything, right? You're not, your feet aren't on the ground in any, in any way. And it's like very selfish. And like the whole point is, is that like they're better with each other, but the only reason they have to live is for each other too. Like it's very selfish. They're beautiful, but they're selfish, right? And then with um, Felix, the whole point of him is obsession, right? And, like, the whole point of him is, like, capitalism is bad, right? Like, he, uh, like, in the course of this series, you watch him go from being a... Uh, a hot shot in the FBI, you know, young gun sort of to um, basically throwing away his entire career and his life more importantly for an obsession. Right. And like his whole thing is like obsession and like needing to be right. And like, you know, deriving all of his value from, that point of validation and you know i don't want to moving into the fifth issue that all culminates but like uh you know uh it definitely is something i think about a lot where it's like you know um they always you know what what is the what is the like uh, sort of meme mantra it's like oh be present like don't don't fucking uh, put all your value in your job or what you're doing. And it's like, you know, it's so much easier to say than do because like we have literally like 300 years worth of like culture telling us, especially if you're a man, uh, you, you, uh, you have no value if you bring no value. Right. You know? Um, and, uh, just playing with that a little bit, that sort of self-destruction, you know, that was the goal of him.
Well, I thought it was an awesome goal, man. I mean, the the way he's executed in this story for us was really a, a fun way to parallel his trajectory as well as when we're following uh, this this small pack, this this group of four who we're introduced to around the same time that we time period that we get introduced to Felix. And now we're watching them both jump through time. And yeah. as we do, yeah, we do get to see, you know, Felix is the young rising. He's got a book coming out. And then just like we saw with our, our group, they, he starts to struggle with uh, what that success means and what that value is compared to something that he wants to understand better. But to better understand it, to learn more, he has to sacrifice all of those things he'd been working up to that point and also has to find another way to define who he is, not only for himself, but his family, and also in terms of the career he had and what possibilities might be in the future for him now because of the choice he's taken that at first appears very destructive. It first appears like it's only has one conclusion possible. This guy's just going to keep going down. Um, and yet at the same time, there's these happy accidents. There are these changes that, that step in. And like we were just talking about with Lee Harvey Oswald, we were, we were watching a president moving upward. And then this guy steps in and whatever the motivations behind it, he becomes the roadblock, right? Ruins. Well, right. now we've got Felix, who's been going on a bit of a downward turn, but something's going to lift his fortunes a little bit, whether it's for good or bad, whether it's actually as positive as it might seem, or maybe if it would have been yeah. better for him to keep going down, we're, we're getting to enjoy that sort of high and low with him. And because of that, we're also able to, to really take a look at what he's doing, why he's doing it. And I thought you brought up something really interesting, which is the ideas of selfish obsession and also being selfless you know in some way he's going to see himself as this guy who's willing to sacrifice everything to uncover a truth or right. a truth and yet if you're sacrificing your family and all these other things are you really doing something for the greater good are you selfless or actually no, you're are you being yourself. selfish right yeah. <laughs> but you can delude yourself into thinking that what you're doing is selfless that you're willing to make the sacrifice for the greater good because yeah because you're objectifying what it is that you're like trying to reveal or like uh discover right like the great truth of like science right like man of science like it's like reed richards <laughs> or it's like Reed Richards yes. is always like talking about science and it's like, you're just a dick. Like you're, <laughs> you're putting all of this, you're putting everything on science and nothing on you. Right. Yeah. That actually, right. That's the whole crux <laughs> in civil war, right? That's what turned Sue away from Reed is Reed's so obsessed. And she's like, my brother got the shit beat out of him. Don't you remember? Just not that yeah. long ago. And he couldn't get past everything. So yeah, he, he, he forgot about his own his own family, right? In the name of that's such a good a good view of 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 his obsession, and I think I think we see that a lot in in um in you know I've got my Batman mug, uh, you know you see that a lot in superheroes, right? There they are definitely there's this level of obsession that is crazy, um, but we we because their motives seem good, therefore they must be good. And, and what I love that you do and what you've just said and Seth, Seth pointed out there is that that is, Felix thinks he's a hero. And, and, and from the perspective, if you, just, if you just cold explained it, 
there's four vampires running loose through history. They're vampires. That means they kill people. And there's one guy, one American hero, GI, FBI guy who's trying to stop them. Who's the hero of this book? You, well, Felix is the hero on paper, but you show us that maybe he's not. And that, um, and that at what point in time is, is his, is this quest that he has um, good at all? Is it good? You know, and, and we see the vampires killing Nazis. We see them do good. Right. Well, we see them do, it always is, it's always good to kill Nazis, but uh, nobody is good in the book, right? Nobody is like, nobody is ethically or morally good in this, in this story. Yes, do I choose a lot of uh, empathetic targets for the vampires? Definitely. However, like, you know, what's the, like the point of like, I mean, uh, I'm not going to, Nazis are not people, right? They give up that right. Um, but like, you know, you kill a piece of shit, you're still killing a piece of shit, right? Like who gives you the right, like, you're not a court, you know, you like, again, like this is, it all comes down to storytelling. So like, what, like, what's the old uh, argument is the Punisher a villain or a hero? And it's like, the Punisher's a villain. The Punisher is a villain. Like he might do a thing that you want to do, right? And that, that, that you need to talk to yourself about that a little bit more, right? But like, you know, the, the Punisher is introduced into Spider-Man as a villain, right? And then like, you know, he, he's not, he doesn't have all the information. He lives in a van, right? Like he like, he, he's kill like, he, he, like, um, imagine how many informants, FBI informants, that the Punisher has murdered just because they got nose crosshair, right? Like, or or the, you know, I mean, the the the, the innocent civilians who might have gotten in 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 the crossfire or whatever. But like, even if he never killed an innocent civilian, which is not true, but like. Uh, you know, it's again, like, is this what we want? Do we want, like, masked vigilantes who claim to have a code going around and, like, fucking killing people? And it's like, no, that's very bad. Like, what you just described is a nightmare. Like, I mean, it is already a nightmare that, like, oh, like, yeah, Spider, like, and then you get into the argument. It's like, well, what's the difference between Spider-Man and, like, fucking the Punisher? And it's like, you know, and, yeah, like, you can – I mean, it's uh, – yeah, when you think about superheroes, like, they're already a nightmare in the sense that we need them. Like, and it's like, why – like, yeah, but that's, like, a whole other thing, right? Like, I don't know. I think what's fun is that we could tie that back to something that you kind of started us off with, with the idea of thought experiments, right? How many ways can we present these in our head and then work through the the calculations as our brain does this, you know, thought experiment. Um, And for me, that's something that's actually been grounding me back to where you start us off in this story, because there's some questions Tony and I have as we've been reading through this issue. And there's one I would love to pose because 
it's also going to, I think, introduce some issues about either morality, right or wrong, and, and purpose and incentive, which were, or intention, which you had also brought up really nicely earlier. Because we see this group of vampires uh, in a time when Albert Einstein was still alive, when this concept of thought experiments was being introduced to the public. So I had a thought experiment. The moment I see what appear to be people stealing blood from a bank and the reason why they would do that instead of if these are vampires, which that immediately starts to lead me to. These are people who are potentially doing this because they need blood, want blood. And unless they're selling it on the black market or doing some other purpose with it, why go to all the trouble to get blood from a bank? And that created this sense of mystery for me. Like, is there something better about blood that's been drawn, that's been freely given? Does it change the context of the uh, transaction between the person who's giving the blood and the person who's receiving it? And then also, how does that lead into any questions about the, the right or the wrong of stealing? You know, someone steals to feed their family. It's for one thing. Someone steals so that they can live an extravagant life. It's another thing. But someone who steals blood does so for a reason. Now, I don't know how much of that you can give away with the idea of um, where that came to you as a thought experiment, as that sort of came as a storytelling device or um, anything else you can add to that, because that created a whole slew of these thoughts for me. And as Tony and I were talking, you can hear our first interview, just like, I wonder if, I wonder if we're probably totally clueless, but we'll, we're going to figure this out or we're just going to have fun pretending we think we can Right. You're going to be really upset. Um, <laughs> okay with that. I, I came up with the idea based off of a popsicle stick joke. Right. And That's it's awesome. like, yeah, uh, I mean, what's like, what's the old joke? It's like, what's a vampire's favorite kind of bank. And then that's like a blood <laughs> bank. And then I was like, Oh, that's fun. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, I wonder if vampires rob blood banks. And then I like just really started taking it seriously but like, uh, and I don't mean to be flipping about the material. A lot of my creator own jokes start as a joke in my head because a joke is just a story, right? Like a joke is just a very simple, like story, like theoretically. Um, and so like, you know, uh, this book is like blood bank robbing vampires, like, and then like, uh, another book I have uh, called Hot Lunch Special is about um, like uh, like a family business versus the mafia and uh, and like in my head I was like I wonder if like there are sandwich millionaires out there right like you know like or like just like some kind of like funny thing to like think about like and kind of like amuse myself with a little bit um, but. With the blood, you know, I mean, like the whole thing for them is just like, you know, it's the classic argument, I suppose, of like, it's just like the world is getting too smart and like they just can't continue being like they, the reason why they steal blood is because like one big score buys them, you know, three or four or six months right and then that 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 allows them to live freely like the thing is is that they are free by design in the sense that like they're immortal and young forever 
kind of individuals and they're not bound by ethics or, or human morality or whatever. But they're also not free in the sense that they're like literal walking demons who have this like affliction that they have to drink someone's blood every night in order to like stay alive. So like that is their limitation, just like a human's limitation is like so many things. So it's like, you know, what are, how can they maximize their freedom while still having to, um, you know, deal with their, their hunger. Right. And like, that's the, that's the whole thing really. I am totally not disappointed. Um, I, I, I love the answer because it helps simplify all the different ways that Tony and I wanted to like, Oh, we can go all these different ways with this. And maybe it's about disease or drugs or, you know, quality or, or things like that. But also I, I love the idea that you say that it comes from popsicle stick joke, because I think that everyone's looking for how they, or everyone has a different way of looking into stories and how they introduce and, I love that you brought up the idea of using something from your youth. You've got a great history with um, being a stand-up comic and using comedy as a way to introduce yourself to storytelling. You just, I think, illustrated that perfectly for us. You saw a joke on a popsicle stick. You took that joke idea as an introduction to a story. And then as you moved into this blood bank concept, we are lucky enough to experience the vein. And how you enter story is so much about how we get the story that you've created because of that. The way you entered that story, the way you told it is what led us to us now having the opportunity to talk about. It. So I, I actually loved your answer, man. And I love the different ways that you brought up storytelling because each one is showing us how we can enter stories. It's not just like there has to be a, well, in this story or once upon a time, Hey, this story starts with a joke except it goes in yeah. a direction you weren't expecting. And yeah. that's a gift, man. <laughs> that's really a I, gift. I'm not disappointed at all. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate I feel, that. I was wondering too, as you, so it started that way. Let's talk just if you, if it's okay, I know um, you're not her, but I would love to hear because it's because these this is such an almost like an abstract concept and earlier you talked about love and and storytelling in abstract things because they don't exist but be you know because they're in your head but then you've now brought in this this amazing artist emily to visualize your story and so for you the story that you have the story that you're telling and now the story that we get to see how did that work out for you? How did that square in your brain as the, as the writer? You've, you've written this, and now the way that Emily's brought your four main you know, vampires and, and Felix to life, in addition to this, this thing. And, and then when you start seeing her images, the secondary question to that is when you start seeing the way she brings them to life, does that change that initial story that you had to tell based on the way that Emily makes your characters live? Yeah, I mean, um, Emily approached me to work with me, right? And, um, 
you know, when something like that happens, like you have to come up with something because it's like gives a person like, like I've got like, this awesome joke. Let's let's see. Right. What, let's see what yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah, it's just like I mean, it's a huge opportunity for me, right? Like, um, and I've been a fan of Emily's work for some time, and 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 we get along very nicely. Uh, and she's a friend of mine. Um, so like you know somebody. You know, if you have the time and the space, you do your best to make something. And I was working on something. Like I had the idea. It was like a, it was just a good, just one of those good times where it's like it it it, it worked out. Um, but um, in terms of like the functional writing of the story, you know, you look at Emily's art, and it's very delicate, and it's very expressive, and it's very like pretty. Right. And it's like, okay, like, so that's how I have to write this book. Right. Like, like, that's the way I like looked at it is that I wanted to like, write it. I just wanted to give her beautiful or, and by beautiful, I mean, ranging of the gambit of horror to like, actual beauty, but like, I just wanted to give her things to draw that would look pretty right like and and like that's a lot of the way I like approached you know I wanted to play to her strength um and 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 that's you know I mean every artist has a you can like you know tells their stories or draws differently and like you can do different things based off of what that person is a skill set for. And like, I just, you know, Emily's art to me is like a sunrise and a sunset. And it's like, I wanted to, 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 to create a tone that um, celebrated that. And then uh, I think Fred's colors on top of it um, also did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's what, what it came down to. And then like, you know, you have your idea for the story and then you think about the art and then like what kind of storytelling they can bring and, and, and how they add to it. And then that also informs later issues too, because you're getting that in and then you're getting inspired and then you're like, you know, but like that's when you start like, you know, really, you know, kind of circling the drain a little bit and like really trying to, to hit the mark you want to hit. If you're, if you're lucky and you're not getting uh you know, if, if you're lucky in, in your messaging, some, some people like it, some people don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, and I think I'm glad you brought up Fred. I, th I think colorists are um, like the score, they, they're scoring your story, right? I always like a, a liken them to the, to the, the Hans Zimmer and the John Williams, you know, like you guys Definitely. have done this thing. And then the, the art, the colorist comes in and is like, you know, we all love Star Wars for our own reasons, but the hero of Star Wars is John Williams, right? He knows, oh, tells you yeah. how to feel. And I think, and I think what, what you do with your book, with the way that the colors land in certain times and, and um, so you know when to be, you know, and I think what you said about the sunrise and sunset is lovely. And I saw Seth's expression when you said that. So I know he's got something to say too about that. But what I love about that idea is that there are moments of such tenderness in this book. And then when you cut those with like the brutality of somebody's spine being ripped out of their, and the fact that she could do those sometimes 
on the same page or sometimes from one page to the next, and especially between orphan, between Fanny and, and Lost, the, the, they're so tender with each other and, and it's such a loving, really beautiful, like a relationship you wish we all, like that's the relationship you wanna be in, like you love somebody that much. And so, and so like the way that they look at each other and everything is just like you said, delicate. And then you're like, oh, brutality. And that's where the, the colors really help when you need to make that shift, it's that tonal shift, and it's like dun dun dun. Blah. So I just I think it's uh, not breaking any new ground here by saying it's beautiful to look at, but I, I think it's interesting to hear you say how you how you changed kind of what you wanted to do, the story you wanted to tell, knowing the the team that you you had. That was I, it's such it, it is such a good book. I love getting my copy every every month. I'm. I, and I really are lucky to be ahead of the game. Seth and I already know what happens in January. So I, I really appreciate that. Like, you know, uh, this book was a, a bit of fun. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. I'm, I, it's, I, yeah. And then you get your, you, you know, you try not to care, but like, I've been fucking doing this for a decade and like, yeah, I'm very fortunate, very blessed, and like I'm very lucky that people still take risks on me. Uh, but then you know, sometimes you're like, am I fucking am I doing this fucking night? Is any of this like, and like, and you're like, yeah, I'm like, and you start to spiral out of control pretty quickly. Uh, but whatever, you know. I wanted to, I man, yes, Tony, I did have a lot of fun thinking about sunrise and sunsets because. Man, you guys, when we do conversations like this, it's so much fun because Tony, earlier you were talking about how we're jumping through time and there's things in between. And sometimes when we're talking about beauty, it's easy to focus on the sunrise and the sunsets, but there's all those periods in between. There's that, you know, those moments when you have the, uh, the sun at, right at the middle of the sky and it's this beautiful, bright, clear day. There's days where you can barely see that sunshine except for in the morning and at night and glimpses throughout the day. It's like this... Is it even still there? What, what, where are you, son? Where, where, <laughs> where did <Right>. you go? <laughs> but also with the trajectory, I'm reminded of uh, Tony and I were talking recently about the show, The West Wing. And there's a, <clears throat> a great episode where they actually talk with staffers who've worked in the West Wing and what their experience like. And I thought they captured something that, that fits so well with so many of us in our lives. You start out and you're so, you know, new to everything and you hope you don't make a mistake and you hope people don't figure out how much you don't really know. And then you get to the point where you kind of feel like, you know, as much as you should or as is possible. And now you're doing things with that knowledge and purpose. And then as you get closer to the end, that sunset, you find yourself going, wow, all that time that I had, what, what time do I have left and what can I do with it? And right. And through that, the, the concept of the beauty of that sunrise and that sunset can help be a part of that shaping. Um, you're talking about a story where you had uh, an intention, you've met with an artist, and then that starts to change the way you want to tell this story. Two things that popped in my head with that are, one, is there anything that we can look at, even in the first four issues, that came about because of your collaboration with Emily that, that we can kind of like look for as we're going through it. Say someone's read the first four issues and they're hearing our conversation and they go, I wonder if there's any of that I can pinpoint through the issues to, and, and point to a, a change that she encouraged you to uh, or inspired you to add to the storytelling that uh, is specific and can be seen from issue to issue. 
or if if that's not you know something that we can identify in this, how then does that? Um, I don't want to get lost in my own question because that can happen when you think you've got two parts. But how then does that um, influence what we're seeing with these characters who both start off bright and fresh and doing all these different things? Although for the vampires, we're not sure their timeline. But now we're we're moving through the story and seeing uh, them at their highest points, sometimes at their lower points, and then making the adjustments along the way. Um, so I know the first part was more about whether or not there's a, a point in the story that we can see where you're you're writing to Emily's think, art, or I think it's just a through line in general of okay. uh, specifically her design work, right? Like Emily's design work, like uh, is I you know when we pitched the book, I just pitched vampires with different sets of clothes on, like in terms of art that I had with the I I couldn't afford to pay or anything, right? So like. I was like, if you're willing to do some uh, sketches and just show different versions of vampires wearing like different outfits, that I think that would be helpful, right? And so she provided those things uh, graciously. Uh, but like, you know, seeing that design work come in, um, really like, you know, it got your mind thinking of like, okay, so she can like do details really well. Like she can do clothing and style really well style you know specifically like style um so it's like what are places that have like great style for that time period right and like you know i mean cuba in 1950s like it's unmistakable right like it's such a mood um they go to Hollywood in the seventies and like Hollywood in the seventies and California, they're in California for the sixties and seventies, but they're in like two very different places. And like uh, in the sixties, I tried to show a little bit of like hate Ashbury at the beginning of flower power. And then at the end of it, like LA as like a 1970s dystopian nightmare. Right. Like of like, you know, like it's really amazing how like, in, in, in the course of like 15 or 20 years, really, like California went from like marketing itself as this like sort of utopian place, right? With like the uh, advent of like suburban development, like, you know, you know, look, look, look at like poltergeists and shit like that. Um, oh, yeah. I think, did I lose you guys? No, you no, you're just not moving. We're just, you just, you had, we were sucked in and listening, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I just thought, I thought it broke. <laughs> no, we were both just like hanging yeah, on but, your words. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was just like confused. Yeah, but you look at like California and it's like, it's like, that's a state. It took 20 years uh, and it went from, you know, Alfred Hitchcock was upset. He thought California was the most American place on, on earth. And that's why all those movies take place. Like California is such a, it's like the, the hope, right? Like it's always been portrayed as the hope of America or like the final, like it's very interesting. And then how it went from like, oh, like flower power, which is, I have a lot of problems with flower power and baby boomers in general, but like, you know, what 61 to 63, it was real right and then like and then it got pretty bad 
and then like by the time 74 rolls around well you have, I mean the Manson family occurred in 69 right I mean 74 you have like uh, all these heavy duty serial killers walking around like there's like three operating in three or four operating in California in, in, in LA and San Francisco alone. Right. And like, not to mention like just the regular everyday murders, right? Like, like, like that's, what's crazy about like serial killers. It's like they're extra murderers, right? Like, cause there's already regular murder. And then these are people who just like, Oh, I just like to murder people now, right? Like, and like, that's crazy. Like, that's like a crazy level of crime to really consider. Uh, but like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just, um, it's just interesting. Like, you know, it just reminds me of, uh, I don't know. I was on a plane, regional plane going from Minneapolis to Bismarck uh, to go do a reading in Bismarck. Uh, for one of my favorite stores, Comics Realms. Hi, Leslie. Uh, nice. And, and nice uh, Bismarck, North yeah. Dakota. Woo! Yeah, Bismarck, <laughs> North Dakota. The last it Bismarck, North Dakota is wild. It is a wild place, uh, and it is very, very cool. And the people there are very nice. But it certainly reminds me. I have only read two and a half out of the like eight of the, uh, of the uh, Stephen King's Dark Tower series uh, because there's a scene in the third book that as it was happening, I was like, I think I'm done now. Uh, but, you know, in the first book, the last town before like they hit the desert, like that's what Bismarck is. It's like the last place. And then it's like just nothing as far as the eye can see. But I remember I was on a plane and, and these uh, two elderly people were like next to me and they were just bitching. And they were just like, used to be back in the day where like you could get on and off the plane and now they make you stay on the plane. And I feel like planes used to be bigger 20 years ago and like I kept doing all of this used to stuff. And I was like, yeah, and I, you used to be able to smoke on them, you know, that's a pretty good idea too. And she's like, and then she like stopped talking to me. And I was like, what do you want from me right now? Like, I'm not, I'm not like what we have now. I don't know what you want. Like, what is the purpose of this conversation? Cause you're just saying things at me and like trying to get me to agree with you. And like, I'm not gonna like, cause I don't like you like specifically cause I don't like you. It has nothing to do with whether or not I agree with you. <laughs> I'm glad I was on mute. I would have laughed through everything you were saying right now. That was. <laughs> <laughs> really, man, that makes it hard to, <laughs> to yeah. follow no, up. Well, that okay, I can, I, can, I can bring us back. So well, here's Don't the thing that I wonder. I wonder, though, because as you said, like Emily's style kind of informed where you told the story, but then there's this view of of like this hellscape of the 70s. And I, I'm born in 73, so like I grew up, my wife and I, we're both, she's 72, I'm 73, and our, we always feel like our thing is the 70s were trying to kill us. Like the, the, 
just in general, like driving from Florida, Michigan to Florida in the back of a pickup truck is a thing I did, you know, in, in my childhood. And, Whew. you know, just like my wife had a- The entire you know, way? All the entire way. Yeah, my parents put my sister wow. in the back of a pickup truck. Your parents are trying to kill you. 100%. <laughs> and um, they, they put, you know, there was a cab on it, one of those like tin cab things. But, sure. You know, yeah, sure. That's super safe. For safety. And, uh, um, and you know, and my wife had like a, a little motorcycle, you know, like back in the 70s, children would have like dirt bikes. But they yeah, yeah, dirt yeah. Bikes that you pedaled. John, they were John actual, Connor. yes, they were actual motorcycles. And so our thing about the 70s, so I think you do capture kind of that, whatever, like, we'd like, as a country, we'd made it to 200 years at that point, And they're like, we give up. And, and so it's just, you know, and there's this sense of, um, of that in the book. And I think just with their characters as well, like in this fourth issue, where they are is also kind of where the country is. And I'm from Michigan and you mentioned serial killers, the Michigan murders happened during the seventies in Ypsilanti. And um, you know, there's just like the craziest shit going down. And I think it's also fascinating that here you have a bunch of vampires who are technically serial killers. Right. Running around, you talked about freedom. So it's interesting that you placed, that you chose to stop one of your full stops is during this time of massive crime. And, And you talked about their freedom isn't them living in a time of where serial killers are everywhere actually kind of make them more free because we see people think they're in a cult. It's a weird cult thing that they're in. It's not just that these like vampirism is not on there, but we're trying to bust a cult makes perfect sense. A cult where they drain people's blood and they burn right. them alive. Um, Cause we can't see what's in front of us. So, so was that part of your stops through history? Like again, sending them to Nazi Germany where they can just kill at will and it's war. So therefore it's okay. So is that part of it is that you wanted to put them in places where their serial killing can go more unnoticed because like there's this scene where it's like six years, they have to live in a subway and eat rats because there is no place for them in the above world where they can blend in. Right. And is that, so that was your intent was to, was to pick kind of hot spots throughout history that it would make sense for vampires to just walk among us because no one would notice. Yes. In short, yes. Uh, in long, and I hesitate to answer this because I don't, I forget the timeline of when I wrote this book, right? Because sure. like the way Oni works is like, you have to have like five issues in the can or whatever. And I'm pretty sure I wrote this well before the events of this summer. I'm almost positive. However, the events of this summer helped put into words and feelings um, that I was trying to do unwittingly and wittingly, but like, I didn't know how right I was not to sound like I'm an asshole, but it's just like, listen, like, like the, like the, 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 all the stuff of like, George Floyd, for example, right? This past summer, it's like what I witnessed was like a lot of things happening at once, right? And it became a situation of pure chaos, right? In the sense that you have like, you have like three to five different power structures just colliding with each other. 
And then that kind of and what I'm uh, it's very difficult because I'm trying to be careful with my words, right? Because words matter. The kind of violence that was occurring, and I don't mean violence displayed by protesters, I mean a general violence, right? A man was murdered, right, by civil servants, and then you have the violence between, like, the forces, right? You have the state, like, beating the shit out of people. Yes, you have maybe a couple bad actors within uh, the protest movement, but that's such a whatever. Like, I'm not going to discuss the... uh, like the very specifics of that, but uh, you can tell I, I clearly am empathetic with them. Uh, and then you have from that situation, once violence has been introduced into, what I'm trying to say is once violence has been introduced into a situation, and that kind of violence where there is blood and murder, all of a sudden, like, it's not, it's just not normal anymore, right? It's even though violence is the history of humanity, like, once that level of, like, high emotion in violence has been introduced to a situation, it become, it is no longer, quote, unquote, normal. Like, it, it, everything becomes heightened. And 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 the and and you and like the goal. That's why they call it. I'm I'm sure. I'm not saying that's why as an expert, but that's why like the goal is always de-escalation, right? Because like ever like once you because violence is so permanent, right? Like and like once you do it, everything is up here, and now you have to work really, really, really hard to bring it back to a level where people don't want to fucking kill each other. And so, like, you know, that week I noticed, like, yeah, you have the state going against civilians. But then also in the middle of that, you have uh, local criminals taking advantage of the time, right, that they had. And that's uh, very true. But then you also had outside white supremacist groups uh, like the KKK and like Nazis and, and whomever coming into the city and like circling around the cops and the protesters trying to like, like start shit essentially. Uh, and, and, and it was like a really interesting fucked up, very scary situation where you had, four or five or six different power structures all acting with like high emotion, high severity impact. And like, and the ball was, it was just, you you couldn't put a lid on it. Like you couldn't control it anymore. And like the only way to let it like kind of play out was almost to like, let it play out. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's very like, it was just a, it was just a situation where there's so much emotion and so much intensity that once the, the like once the gears of history started turning, you couldn't unturn them. Right? It's too late now, and like, and that is just 
for a week long. I mean, it, it lasted much longer than that. It's still going on, obviously. But like, the the for me, the climactic part was five, six days long. And like, now when you come and think about it, and think about what war does, right? Like even World War Two, right? The just war, right? Like that is a situation like of pure chaos, right? Even if the Nazis are in control, like even if you have lawful evil at the helm of your government, like once war and violence is introduced to situation, like it's out of control now. It's, it's so much, you cannot control it, right? Like, uh, and like, you know, you, and that's why I put them in World War Two is because like, what's the best? They, these vampires are agents of chaos. So they thrive in chaos. So like, where can they be the most hidden? In places where there's violence, in places where there's blood already being spilled, right? They're hiding in, in plain sight amongst, you know, the cultural situation in World War Two. I mean, uh, World War II was 30 years long, right? It was only four years long for America. Uh, but like, and it lasted another two years afterwards, right? And then we switched pretty much focus to the Cold War. And like 1950s, uh, I mean, listen, I am, the, I don't want to talk about the intricacies of the Castro regime, I'm just going to say I get why they did what they did. And I think it's always very funny when people like talk about Castro and then like as a complete villain, which he was, but also the, it's like they, they're remembering a different form of fascism, like fondly. And it's like, Batista was like, he was a piece of shit too. It's like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, what are we, what are we talking about? Like the, the, the whole 1950s Cuban revolution is like one of the most fascinating things on the face of the planet, right? Like, and that is a good situation for people to hide in. Like, cause you had, I mean, you had revolutionaries, you had the state of Cuba, you had uh, mafia, you had uh, American intelligence agencies, right? And then you had people with their own designs, right? Cause there's always local, strong people with their own designs. I mean, and then you have, look at, I mean, and then California, we just discussed like California's violence is more of a, a cultural violence, like a very interpersonal violence, the sort of war that we see with like the police and the people now. Uh, and like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's just very, as I look at like situations more and more it's like the the reason i think you want to the reason why people preach nonviolence isn't necessarily i think because it's the ethical thing to do uh it's because w one if you're a nonviolent protester uh you it's you have to be better than the other person because like they're already using violence on you and that violence has been normalized. Right. So like 
it's okay for the cops to beat the shit out of you, even though it's not. But like we have, we are now at that place in our culture where it's okay. Like, you know, how many years did we watch cops on television? Right. Like, I mean, so the reason why I think ultimately nonviolent protest is the thing that has achieved or is the thing that is, is oftentimes preached or oftentimes not preached, but oftentimes try to do it because once you, once you invite, once you hit back, all of a sudden the, the conversation's so different now. Right. And like, and all the afflicted party can think about is like, Oh, you hit me. Like now I'm going to hit you harder. Right. Like, and like, I'm not trying to make any value judgments. I'm just saying that that is the result, right? The result of violence is that like, it's more, it, 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 it intensifies the situation dramatically. Right. And like, and, and like, just, that's what I at least, am experiencing or, or, or have felt. And then when I, when you look back on, on like the history of like violent conflict, like I think, yeah, I mean. No, actually, you know what though? I was, I'm like, oh, that's gonna be, because I, I, we're gonna have to wrap it up in a second. And I think though, because where we end issue four, we see a big, a big blowout coming, right? Phoenix yeah. is coming for him they're on the road, they're on slash on the run. And so I think that's an excellent way. And Seth, I'm sorry if that's, if I, this is okay for me to say, I think this is a good place because what you've just said to us in this explanation of how violence begets violence. And if there was a different road, like right now, we, what you're telling us, I think, and Seth, correct me if you think something differently, is that the only logical conclusion for episode, issue five is a bloodbath. And that what you've said to us, Elliot, is this whole book is showing us how violence just begets more violence. And if there was a moment, there's like there's moments in time in the book when Felix is locked up or they're underground where there is no violence. And so therefore they're, they're out of sight. And so now that they're all back in public and the violence is there happening in front of you, you know, you're leading us to some kind of epic confrontation. What do you, am I, what do you think, Seth? Is that... I believe what's great is that <clears throat> we're leading up to a choice because I think what Elliot was describing to us is that as violence is raised and as violence increases, because once violence begins, as you pointed out, Lily, and I'm putting my hands up. So if you're listening, you don't know what I'm doing right now, but I'm, right. I'm following something that Elliot did when he was putting his hands higher up. To yeah. I forgot that this is a podcast. <laughs> I used my hands a lot. I'm so That's okay. <laughs> I just yeah. watched myself do it and I thought, wait, I'm referencing something he did that no one who's listening yeah. knows. So really yeah. quickly, we raised our hands to sort of show that violence, once it begins, elevates and escalates and, and it puts everything at such a heightened level. And from that point, there's only two options. Either the violence continues to escalate or you find ways to de-escalate. So Tony, actually what I'm left with is in this fifth issue, there will either have to be a bloodbath or a de-escalation. Or there might have to be a bloodbath that leads to a de-escalation. Um, but that it, there's only going to be a limited number of choices available as violence increases, as things continue to move up and up. And then unless there's a tactic that, that employs de-escalation, then yes, the only other result is potentially a bloodbath. But 
it's interesting because so many times I've heard that phrase. There's always a moment when you can ask someone, can we put the pin back in? Can we find right. a way to de-escalate? Do we have to keep responding to what's happening? And we've seen a lot of action and reaction. And it's been uh, reciprocal in many ways or an attempt to be. But if it's not, if there's some moment where Felix and our amazing four have a moment of going, okay, this is either going to go really bad or we do something completely different. Now, that's a choice that for the reader and the story presents a wild range of possibilities or a wide range of possibilities and because of, and a wild one, I'm going to say wide and wild. Yeah, yeah. That, bec- so that because wild. of that, you can, you can sort of look at this fourth issue as leading to something in the fifth. Your expectation might be one thing, but the possibilities still also available to us. For me, that's a lot of uh, anticipation on my part because I could see where, yeah, it should just go one way. But a great story doesn't always have to just go one way. And it can still show us the options before either it tragically goes one way or in another way shows us a different path. And Elliot, I think you set us up really nicely with this fourth issue for what issue five could be, either all out mayhem or another option that we haven't seen because we've been so focused, which not to Tony, I know you got to go, but we've been talking about how we're jumping through time and we're talking about how these people have hidden and it's, it's so easy to miss things when you're focused on only what you think is important. And if these characters in this story, if they stop focusing on these things they think are so important and can just pay attention to something that the other is trying to show them, I, I think we could see more than just a bloodbath ending at issue five. So that's my that's response. Well said. I hope so. Maybe. It, yeah. And Elliot, thank you so much for your time, man. Um, really? And unfortunately, I'm on, a, I'm on a schedule. So could you give, before, because Seth and I can do ours, we can record ours and yeah, say yeah, our sure. outros. So tell everybody, first of all, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I, thank thanks, you. Seth, for letting us <laughs> be on your show and oh, please. letting me tag along. I love Wait, it. I get two awesome guys on my show. That's, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> Elliot, where can everybody in the world, like, how do people find you and follow you and on the interwebs? Uh, yeah, so it's Elliot Ray Hall and uh, I have Twitter, uh, Patreon, and uh, you know, check out my uh, my books. Uh, obviously, coming out the vein, my other vampire book, Bleed Them Dry, uh, and then I I just uh, had the first release of. Uh, my new creator-owned book, uh, Knock 'Em Dead, from Aftershock, and uh, this past, uh, yeah, yeah. So that, awesome. That's amazing. It would be awesome, also, to maybe catch up with you in the future, man. Talk about, uh, Ab- you know, anytime. both of those projects. Anytime. Yeah. anytime, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here to talk. I'm here to talk. So whatever <laughs> you guys amazing. want. We'll, we'll plan a different time when I've got, when I'm not up against something. So I, I appreciate everybody. Thanks, totally. Elliot. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, guys. Have a nice afternoon. All right, guys. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Elliot. Uh, that was awesome, man. I, I'm going to be thinking about some fun stuff. Good thought All experience day. for the day. I know. I exactly. love it. I love when, you, <laughs> when you're done with something and it sits with you. And I, with the vein, I just recently read Dan Waters' Coffin Bound. And as soon as I was done, I had to go back and read that again. So I can't wait till we get issue five so I can go back to the beginning. I'm going to read issue five by itself and then go back to the game and read all five. You know, wow, and- well, it feels good that you're, uh, you're, you're, you're lumping me in with 
coffin bound. That's an incredible series. What yeah, a great book. Yeah. <laughs> Dan Waters is very smart. Uh, all of those British motherfuckers are smart. Like, <laughs> he was just on my show. If you, I can send you the link to Coffinbound. You That's can hear cool. him wax, wax on about that. It was pretty cool. So, all right, well, I'm off. Thanks, everybody. And Seth, we'll, we'll figure out a time because we've got to talk work. Seth and I work together too, Elliot. So oh, we need to talk about, so maybe we can, like when we meet, we can record our outro then too. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, let me know what your time's like this week. Sometime man. later this fly. week, probably tomorrow or Friday, I'm thinking. That works perfectly for me. Okay, Elliot, cool. thank you again, man. Blessings for all of your insights oh, yeah. and thoughts, compassion. I mean, I loved everything you had to say, man. I loved your honesty and it, it was a gift. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the same from you guys. Thanks, man. So Elliot. Do we start out with the deep. fact that Elliot, you know, basically ran the show? All we did was Dude, ask like four to six questions. It was, a pr- it was pretty. <laughs> he definitely made our lives easy. And uh, I mean, I, the thing is, I like that. And also like, as you and I, you know, we are doing this. We want to have things to say too. But it was, he made it easy to not want to interrupt him though. You know, it's like sometimes you're like, wait, what are we talking about? You know, because he wasn't, he didn't take us down any like line of, he didn't say anything that was, I'm sure there's some things he said, like, you know, George Washington was an asshole. Well, yeah, all right, (laughs) fair, totally fair. He did own humans. We have to cope with that fact, right? I mean, there's a reason that my favorite president is not George Washington, you know, that's that's on the list. So, but yeah, I mean, I think he was pretty ballsy, right? He just put shit right out there. Yeah, he had no hesitation with just um, being really clear about this is the direction I'm coming from. This is what I thought about it. And this is why you're going to see certain pieces of that reflected in my stories. And when it comes to, you know, the vein, this this whole idea about, you know, we're asking all these intellectual questions, you know, in our first conversation about, well, what is the you know, what is the meaning behind all of these things? And yeah. he's basically saying, yeah, so time for me to explain a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to get wrapped up in the, you know, majesty of it or something like that. I'm, I'm actually calling it for what I think. Um, and then... <laughs> the popsicle <laughs> Remember how many... Yeah. Right. Well, remember how many theories we had at the beginning oh, about we why did they do the heist and why did they yeah. do the blood? So I ask him, you know, yeah, uh, why, why do you, you know... What was the reasoning? And what's his answer? Oh, you're going to be so disappointed. It came from a joke on a popsicle stick, Um, which was great, though, because I was like, no, I'm not disappointed. I am thinking to myself, I did some research on you. You were a stand up comic. It's actually how he says he enters a lot of storytelling is through jokes and comedy. So the fact that he was inspired to write this story by jokes and that he, you know, he did that because, um, he basically started most of his artistic career as a stand-up comedian. He was able to, I think it was like 17 from what I read. I could be wrong on that. Right. I can't imagine trying to get on a stage and have any sort of coherence. I I was trying to write sentences correctly for my local (laughs) newspaper best and constantly being called out for like, no, you did that wrong. This guy's out there trying to be funny. Like how do you be that sort of, and have that timing. And yet, it was really beautiful when I was reading, you know, he took from that this wild experience in his twenties where he actually also like says, I had to, you know, break down some of the ideas I was raised with or had believing up until that point. And I had the luxury to do that. I actually had an opportunity to be supported while I went through a really 
I recommend for anyone do some research. Elliot has a lot of really profound things to say about concepts that we don't always talk about, but that we're aware of because we've seen them in people around us. And also how important it is for us to talk about those things in a way that doesn't feel judgmental. That in an interesting way, he said it once, we can be as woke as we want to be. And yet at the same time, we can really lack human compassion when we hear certain ideas that don't jive with what we think are appropriate, let alone believable. And I, I think keeping that in mind, it, it's so easy to see what he was doing with the vein, the concept of believability, and maybe even a little of himself in Felix as our, you know, how do I tell people this is really happening when they're not even going to believe the first five words I say? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I think that's true. And, and I think what good, what stand-up comedy does, and not all of it, sometimes it's just fart jokes, but the comedy I like is not just storytelling. It's, which I enjoy, but you know, I like a long joke, like John Mulaney, like it'll take him forever to get to the punchline and that's okay. <laughs> right. Like his Tom Jones, what's new pussycat thing. Like, that is genius. I love that bit. And it goes on for like eight minutes. <laughs> right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right. That's yes. genius. And right? you're and just so, sort of like enthralled. Like, right. Keep going. like I can't believe keep going. this is still going on. But, <laughs> but I think like, you know, Carlin, is the master of observational humor where you're just like, I'm going to point some out and it's quick. And you, you'll spend a month thinking about this thing I said in one sentence. And I think, so knowing that, you, you know, that, that Elliot comes from that stand-up comedy and, and he's, he's trying to make observations about things, whether it's a joke that he's going to turn into a different kind of story or whatever it is. So he's these little snippets of life that, that work that, that definitely make people uncomfortable sometimes. And I think the best, the best com and for me the best stand-up comedy is stuff that's like again not just like hey oh fart you know like fart <laughs> jokes but like like oh damn or catchphrase right the, the way homer the stuff that like the the joke sits later right and you're like the next day you're like damn all right that was genius you know so so i it so i works. think that's you know and i think so what you're saying is is that you know so he's here he is a 17 year old kid going out making these observations and saying stuff. So yeah, I think that's real wise to think that, that he and Felix share some DNA because Felix is saying things that people don't want to hear, not as a joke, as a reality, but I think also the best comedy is reality, right? The reason the daily show is so good is because it, it's, it is just sometimes the daily show jokes aren't even jokes. It's just Trevor or John before him, just playing the news back to you. And you're just like, oh, <laughs> that's absurd. <laughs> and then there's not even a joke there. You know, so it's just right. showing it to you. This yeah. is the absurdity we accept. And let's talk about how we accept it or, Correct. you know, <laughs> identify it. And even then in the process of going, look at that. It's like, okay, but now we're looking at you going, look at that. And <laughs> in the yeah. process, we, we, we are quickly reminded that for all the things we laugh at, it, it's probably best we remember to continue laughing at ourselves because, oh. man, we're, we're as much as part of the absurd joke as, as we are in the process of sharing. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. And I'm really excited to see. So when this show drops, it'll be, we're putting this out the week that episode four comes out. Uh, issue four, but you and I, thanks Tara, by the way, I hope you're listening, we'll have already, we'll know Thank how it you, ends Tara. for everybody else, uh, but we won't spoil, we'll keep it to ourselves, uh, but we'll probably no talk and be like, holy shit, I can't believe that's happening. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I'm excited, I, I appreciate it, and it was, uh, 
Um, honestly, 100%, it was Altera uh, from Oni Press who sent who sent me these, and she's like, "Hey, what do you think of this stuff?" Because of you, it's all because you got us to do the interview with Justin, and Tara heard it and was like, "Hey, you want some more Oni really? stuff?" That's how it happened. Okay, yeah. so that's new to me. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So yeah, uh, so that's how it all worked out. So Tara heard our interview with Justin, and was like, "Man, do you want to get on the T- Oni Press mailing list?" Um, yes, please. You're going to send me <laughs> stuff in advance please wow. and so she sent me a whole packet of stuff and that's what i sent this first one i was like oh man that the vein i only read issue one of the vein i'm like that looks cool and she's like cool let's see and so she reached out and that's how all this happened so tara at oni wow, press tara, thank you i i'm gonna send her an email later and just say thank you and, and yeah wow but i hope you're listening tara because this is all the results of you connecting us with elliot and what a blessing that was what an amazing oh. guy what a thoughtful heartfelt compassionate guy um you know you, i love with, that, that that he's like again the fact that now that i know he's a stand-up comic that his he <laughs> sold this by saying sexy vampires and then that's like we barely talked about that because you don't have to so what did i mean what a dodge like he's like oh yeah sexy vampires i promise there'll be some sexy vampires and then he gives right. us those but there does it's irrelevant like that's not the story he's telling but he sold it as that so i think that's genius right yeah like like you can draw them as sexy vampires go ahead they're gonna look gorgeous now the story part don't worry i'll take care of that i got that yeah Yeah. hey hey. yeah trust the trust the guy who sold it to you on sexy vampires yeah so i think it's great so it was excellent so yeah by the time this comes out you and i will know how it ends so everybody's listening to this we already know seth and i know we don't know like our future us knows how it ends this us on december 11th don't know but we think we know. We're sure we're wrong. <laughs> and keep in mind, Elliot warned us about all those great qualities that come with time jumps. How right. can this play into things? Well, I recommend you keep listening. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And it sounds like we'll probably arrange another thing. He's got tons of good work. So we'll look yes, at something next year. We'll, well, this year, because you guys will be listening to this in January. And we'll uh, get something. Just with send me the now. invite link, man. I'm clicking. I'm there. Dude, and honestly, <laughs> we don't have to do anything. I will. We know now, Elliot. Thank you for making our job super easy. Next time, we'll each just bring two questions. <laughs> hit play. Hit record. Go, sir. The floor is yours. Yes. Yeah. I think, but I think it, he couldn't have done it if we didn't understand what he was going for. If we were just like, "What was your inspiration?" Like, but because we had specific questions about things, he could tell we had thoughts about it. So it made it a lot easier for him to just go because he knew he was talking to people who got it. It wasn't just like, I heard you wrote a comic book. Let's talk about that. You know, it was like, we, we weren't that. People. We were waxing political for an hour, man. Like just the two of us. So yeah, know, he kind of knew like, good... you guys spent an hour without me just talking yeah. about the books. Uh-huh. So good. And now we got you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was good. It was a good time. So, well, cool. Well, everybody, I hope everybody enjoyed that. And, um, and now this part will be at the end of both of our shows, my show yes. and Seth's show. So, <laughs> Seth, I hear that you're on the internet. If people were on the internet and interested in catching up with you, what would they do, do you think? Well, back in my day, in my younger years, <laughs> I remember discovering the wonders of the uh, worldwide web. And now uh, to say so would date me. However, I can simply say, one, you can find me on Twitter 
Twitter is one more singleton. You can find me on Instagram as Seth the Writer, but I always promote my dogs, Bruno and Fiji. They're cuter than I am. If you're going to look at pictures of anything, it's probably going to be them, not me or stuff, but you can do whatever you want. And then lastly, go ahead and uh, try just typing my name, Seth Singleton in the word story into a search engine. Let me know where you find me. Otherwise, I'm on all the podcast platforms under uh, Storytelling with Seth. And you're going to probably notice there are a few now and hopefully plenty more to come collaborations with my good friend, Mr. Tony Farina. Tony, where can the good people find you? Well, thank you, sir. Well, so the, the first half of our interview was on the Comics in Motion podcast network, which again is on multiple places. We both are hosted by Anchor. Thanks, Anchor, for being thank you, Anchor. used. Um, so we're both on Anchor, and but we're everywhere. I list, I actually don't listen on Anchor. I listen on um, Pocket Cast is my jam. Uh, because nice. I am an audio learner and I can listen at faster speeds. So I'm able to listen to more podcasts than most folks because I can listen. Po- Pocket Cast can go up to triple speed, which is too fast. Um, but I can listen to stuff at double speed sometimes a little bit more. So I'm like, Pocket Cast is my jam. So if you're, on, if you're not on Pocket Cast, you're like, I would listen to more podcasts if I just had more time. Pocket Casts. No, no paid advertising from Pocket Cast. I'm just a fan. Um, so anyway, that's where you can find me there. And uh, so my Twitter is at Tricycle Boombox. Um, uh, if you don't like the Twitters, then you can just go to my website, arfarina.com, and you can leave me a message there. I've got a contact me button. And that has links to all kinds of shows uh, that I've been on and, and stuff that I do, or st- stories I've written, songs that I've written, cool stuff there. And of course, we both work for Damien um, over at DC Comics News. And uh, I've been writing for Steve over at Fantastic Universes as well. Occasionally I drop something there. But um, yeah, so, so DC Comics News. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Josh. Um, Thanks, Josh. They are the reason we met in the first place. Very true. Very true. We, we owe them much and we will continue to recognize them for bringing us together, man. That's true. It's totally true. So that's where I am. So, um, and I would just like to say to everybody... Um, I'm going to end my show with the Clash Train in Vain. Nice. I have not gotten to that point. Ooh. But I tell you what, I I will have something fun because Tony just raised the game there. Just the game. Because it's the vein. And then right? when you think about the lyrics, did you stand by me? Oh, not at all. <laughs> did you stand by me? No way. Like that's the lyrics of Train in Vain. And so when you think about... The, the characters in this in this book and who stayed by who and why and the way Hoover treats the vampires, the way they treat each other, and then the way Felix and his wife, I just feel like there's a line in a movie management that it's called management. It's like a nobody nobody saw it. It's Steve Zahn and Jennifer Aniston and Woody Harrelson. And there's this line in there where Woody's got a picture of himself, Joe Strummer, whatever character Woody's playing. He's always just playing Woody Harrelson, right? He's just always right. And uh, the guy's like, who's Joe Strummer? This guy. And he's like, and he puts his arm around this kids and he's like, Joe Strummer made love to your mother and then wrote a song about it. And the kid, and the kid just goes, okay. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I just, I love that. I like, you know, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not the world's biggest Clash fan, but I just think like that's such a, and tra- you know, Train of Vain is, is such a great song. So I'm going to end with that. So we'll see what we'll hear when we listen to your half of the interview. I don't know that I will ever be able to keep up with that sort of degree of musical knowledge, my friend. That's just, I love music. I'm always listening to music. So it's, it's, 
<laughs> it's humbling and inspiring at the it's same just, time. How about I'm that? I'm not, I mean, I, I just play ukulele. I just like to listen to music. So, well, anyway, thanks everybody. Thank you, Seth, for doing this again with me. We'll do it again in the new year. And we'll, whether it's with Elliot or something else, or just you and me getting together to, to gab about something. And maybe if you want, um, Derek and I are talking Department of Truth in February. Ooh, I think I can I give you the date off air happy. if you want to jump in. We could all, we that could would be this. awesome. I would love to. I've never had the chance to chat with Derek on one. Oh. Department of Truth would be a great time to do it. Derek's a, he knows shit, man. That guy. Yeah, he does. This is true. Well, yeah. I mean, come on. Look, you got Matt Lloyd on his own show. I mean, talk about a guy who knows some stuff about oh, some stuff. Going to college Between every day. him and Steve J. Ray. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, just I love the way Derek thinks about stuff. You know, I think he's just such a great, I love his reviews. I like listening to him talk. So I like having <laughs> him on, you know, it's like such a fun thing. Cause we, you know, it's, it's just good. So yeah. So uh, we'll talk off air. You'll come on department of truth. I'm sure he won't care. That would be awesome. That I, I love his enthusiasm for that. So it'd be fun to be a part of that, man. Definitely. I will. Cool. Definitely. All right. Well, we will see everybody next time. Peace Take out. care, everyone. Thank you.